Exodus 21, 22-25 If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Bryant Bales. And I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Exodus chapters 21 and 22. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. We're so thankful for you being with us today, and we hope that... Uh, what we have to say is useful for you in your walk with God, in your further development in his kingdom. And we certainly hope you're a part of his kingdom. If you're not, we'd love to have a discussion with you about that as well. We're certainly grateful also to be joined today by uh, Jeremy Hodges. And uh, Jeremy, you doing okay today, man? Having a great morning, sir. Good deal. And Bryant, how are you doing? Doing very well now that I'm uh, awake. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we we tend to record this pretty early in the morning, so, but it's a it for me it's a great way to start the day. Um, but yeah, before we do is. start, we uh, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Facebook. You can search at Walking Through the Book on Google, and you'll find us very easily. You can also email us Walking Through the Book at protonmail dot com. Jeremy, why don't you let everybody know how to get in touch with you? Well, uh, I'm up in the uh, D.C. area, so we get a lot of visitors who happen to be around us. So if you happen to be visiting the D.C. area, you can search for the congregation's uh, website, uh, wildercroftcoc.org. Uh, my email is just jeremy.a.hodges at gmail.com. Uh, we're pretty easy to find. We've got, uh, like the other guys here, we have a website that makes it easy for you to find uh, where we are. One of the things that's neat about our congregation, because we are so close to a hub where people often visit and vacation or come see different things in the uh, nation's capital, a lot of times we'll arrange to be able to get people from the metro stations or whatnot so that they can be able to worship mm. with us. It's a, yeah, it's nice. It's a, it's a service that the congregation provides because we, we do have so many visitors. <laughs> Very good. And uh, Brent, why don't you let everybody know how to get in touch with you and what you do or where you work and uh, then kind of go over the flow of the program. Sure. Um, so I'm Bryant Bales and uh, I work as an evangelist with the uh, uh, Garden City uh, Church of Christ in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Like Jeremy, it's an area with a lot of tourism. So if you're ever in the area or passing through, we would love for you to come and visit with us. It's 
um, it's pretty easy to find the area where the church is meeting. Uh, we're on a main road just west of downtown Savannah. And our website is strivingforthefaith.org or .com. And there's the address of the building and I think uh, like a GPS map of where we are on the website. We've also got a Facebook page um, that you can look us up there. And my uh, my email is cartoonguy5 at hotmail.com. Uh, I think I've kept that email since I was like 12 years old. Um, if, uh, if you're ever in the area, like Jeremy said, um, please get into contact with us and, uh, we'd love to, uh, help you out finding the congregation or, um, get to know you by, uh, going out to eat with you and showing you some, some things in Savannah, if you'd like. That's for the flow of the program. Uh, the way that we, um, do our reading is like what Stephen, uh, already mentioned earlier. It's very simple, but we believe is very powerful. So we, we strive to just read through the scripture uh, to start. So we're going to be reading Exodus 21 and 22 all the way through. And afterwards, we talk about first any initial observations, things that uh, either we haven't noticed before or um, just haven't maybe thought about before with the text or things that we just see are important points of emphasis that we want to make sure we touch on uh, before we talk about themes and with themes, we were looking at things that might relate to the greater context of the Old Testament, maybe the greater context of Exodus and some parts of Exodus that we haven't read yet. And uh, even looking oftentimes at the way that things connect to Christ and the New Testament, uh, the way things relate to the church or, or prophecy. Uh, and then at the end of the program, we always try to end with some applications. So what we're trying to do at that point is um, try to think about anything that we can maybe more practically and immediately uh, take away things that um, should either impact and change us or ways that we can uh, develop in our service to God. So that's, that's how we'll be doing things this morning. Exodus 21. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and if she has borne him sons or if his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, 
I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with he shall deal with her according to the custom of he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other, and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod, so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child, so that she gives birth prematurely yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner had been warned, yet he does not confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Whether it gores a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same rule. If the ox gores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master thirty shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. If a man opens a pit, or digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead animal shall become his." 
If one man's ox hurts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and divide its price equally, and also they shall divide the dead ox. Or if it is known that the ox was previously in the habit of goring, yet its owner did not confine it, he shall surely pay ox for ox, and the dead animal shall become his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If what he stole is actually found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man lets a field or a vineyard be grazed bare and lets his animal loose so that it grazes in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and from the best of his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain of the field itself consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and is stolen from the man's house, if the thief is caught, he shall pay double. If the thief is not caught, the owner of the house shall appear before the judges to determine whether he laid his hands on the neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is actually stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is... I'm going to start that one again. <clears throat> if it is all torn to pieces, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn to pieces. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor, and it is injured or dies while its owner is not with it, he shall make full restitution. If its owner is with it, he shall not make restitution. If it is hired, it came for its hire. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. 
the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. to these laws, the practicality, the actual usefulness of these things hits me every time because when I grew up in churches and we talked about the law, they often talked about what a burden and an onus and a difficulty and a hardship it was and how empty it was from any kind of spiritual following God. But you can't have a spiritual following God without any kind of physical practicality. And so the idea of loving your neighbor is here given flesh. And I mean, what I mean by that is loving your neighbor is told how to do these things, uh, how to do that with all these different laws. It's not a burden. It's called love. In thinking of this, I mean, historically, I think of the Code of Hammurabi. A lot of people make comparisons. Uh, Some people might say that (coughs) Moses stole from Hammurabi, which I think, again, is just another way for us to say, like, the Bible is not true. That's really the the thought behind it, I think, very often. But, uh, I mean, you can look up the the laws of Hammurabi. We find many of those. um, And and there is a similarity there. I'm looking at the one for theft, law number 22. If anyone is committing a robbery and is caught, then he shall be put to death. Things like that is very, like, you know, straightforward. But you even look and see in here that when you're talking about theft here, he's not just going to be put to death, right? No, no. I mean, he has an opportunity to make restitution, right? Right, right, precisely. So, so, uh, again... We, we want to try to say that like the Old Testament is so hard and so uh, such uh, a vicious um, law when it's very clear that man's laws that he comes up with himself, they're much more vicious, much more cruel uh, than, than what God gave his people. That's right. One of the things I think is interesting is that he puts limits on certain things. He talks about this idea mm-hmm. of serving mm-hmm. someone else's. We, we talked about. Uh, okay, so I don't think you can talk about slavery in this country without under without the understanding that what we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not the same thing as we had in antebellum yeah, slavery in America. Not at all. Right. Uh, 
the antebellum slavery in America, you can't talk about the same way because, first of all, kidnapping is completely forbidden in the law. Therefore, it's not the same mm-hmm. thing. Secondarily, it was absolutely against God's law to return a runaway slave. If a slave came to you as a runaway, you were supposed to hold to house him and hide him. It was actually commanded to not turn him back to his uh, master right. if he'd run away. Therefore, the two things are just, I mean, it's apples and oranges. Having said that, uh, well, not, not, not even not even a great uh, contrast to that. Here, one of the things we can notice is that there's a goal in this. In verses 5 and 6 in chapter 21, he talks about this idea of not leaving the situation he's got. His situation is so good yeah. uh, that he is saying, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to work permanently. So he doesn't, he becomes more a part of the family. This familial relationship that we can see between uh, an appropriate master and his servant is shown in several, uh, not only narrative accounts, but here in some of the laws. And so the goal here, of course, is to make it so that you have someone who's a part of your family and is, um, and is mm-hmm. loved. Uh, the other thing, of course, is the, uh, the idea that you could have someone, again, this isn't approval, this is regulation. Um talks about pulling in a a female slave who was going to be uh, uh, somebody who would be, I guess if you wanted to put it this way, more like a a harem type situation. Uh, Again, your regulation of it, you don't necessarily have approval of it. God's laws for marriage were one woman and one man for life. Of course, we can see that in Genesis chapter one. But if they were going to bring in these other women who were going to have... what we might say like it'd be a sexual role in the, in the relationship. There were rules about what they could or could not do. And so you can read that uh, there. So again, I find it interesting that just because you have a woman who comes in as a servant and would uh, have a, a sexual role in a relationship, she is not non-human she is still to be treated as a human being. And there were regulations about the way that you could and could not treat her. And that is wildly different than we see in when human beings kind of make up their own way. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, just another on this same point, I hate to keep, keep hammering this, but like, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the text here. Hammurabi code law number 282 if a slave say to his master you are not my master if they convict him his master shall cut off his ear so like just just the thought of what he's saying to them can be punished under that but there's nothing like that that i find in the old law and and i think your distinguishing factor here I mean, the slavery they had in ancient Egypt, I think you could term as what we could think of as harsh slavery, uh, a subhuman aspect of it, because we know we know from the text uh, from Genesis that the Egyptians hated shepherds. And if we kind of bring that together, that here's a shepherd people that comes in among them. Well, I mean, it's pretty easy to recognize that after a generation or so when you have a new ruler come up, it's going to be pretty easy for him to subjugate them as being subhuman. Um, so, so again, you know, I I think what we're, what we see here, really the slave or servant, as we see in the old Testament 
is going to be a lot closer to what we think of as like an indentured servant Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, someone who may be, maybe like a tenant farmer. And I mean, Hey, the reality is like I had great grandparents that were tenant farmers and uh, you know, now that's not exactly the same thing, even as indentured servitude, but I mean, but it's a lot closer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. So I I was interested recently uh, by the, the popularity of the show Downton Abbey, which talks about this same kind of relationship, which is you have someone who is the master of the property and you also have the people who work for them. Are they servants ish? Are they employees? Well, kind of. And so there's this medium ground that I think that we don't often consider when we use the word slave or servant, because in this country, we jump immediately to what we had here in the, uh, uh, during the early part of this country, which was abominable. So uh, I think it's important for us to contextualize some of this stuff. But there are three sections in here that I think help us to talk to and defend God's loving laws to people who have an agenda uh, that says we need to discount what the Bible says immediately. And the first one, of course, was the mm. slavery stuff. Man, there's just so many good things to talk about. It's hard to pick. I mean, one 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 of the things is that just like in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, you know, um, we talked last time about how the law is a law of liberty. You know, it starts off with God emphasizing that he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. I think it's interesting that that principle is restated in verse 2 through 6 of chapter 21 at the beginning of the ordinance section. You know, that I think I think the beginning of Exodus 20 and the beginning of Exodus 21 and, you know, basically give context for everything that comes afterward, you know, so you think like, what's this law really, what's, what's the purpose? What's the basis? You know, God freely redeemed Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And now he's saying that you now, when you have a slave, you are also going to freely release them from bondage, you know, out of slavery as well. So it's almost like they're getting to, they're getting the opportunity to reenact what God had done for them in a more intimate way. But that, that intimacy of application, I think would cause them to reflect in their hearts on the grandeur of God's work, you know, which is very similar to the applications we make in the new Testament as well. Um, You know, we make intimate applications of things and it makes us reflect on the grandeur of greater things that God has done. You know, so I think it's like what you were saying, Jeremy, that, you know, the, the view that the law was this harsh, burden is really taking God out of the context of the law. That's right. You know, the other part you talk about them um, kind of remembering that God had freed them from the land of Egypt. But even before that, that they were taken care of in Egypt. And right. You know, so in 22, 21, he says, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him for you Mm -hmm. were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this time that they spent there, where God took care of them using this foreign nation, they were to reenact that toward people who were in their nation, but yeah. were not one of the yeah. people. And right. so just because someone is different, or they're an outsider, or they're an alien, or a stranger, that does not mean that we get to treat them any old way we want. Yeah, and, and it really seems clear that like God is focusing on handling the oppressed and those who by man's 
way of thinking would be robbed of all rights and privileges. Um, you know, because you think about like how many of these laws apply to like an orphan or a widow or a slave. That's right. I think it's mainly it's mainly the promises that apply to them. You know, like the stuff about oxen and property and masters treating their slaves fairly, like all of those are laws regulating the people who have the power, uh, people right. who have the money, people who have the means, you know? Um, but a slave is, is really just the only things that really apply here are the promises, the liberties. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Well, you make a really good point there that, that this is not to empower the slave owners, right? It's not too right. I mean, again, <clears throat> someone can make the case. Well, it's not saying slavery is forbidden, and so you know, it's it's giving the power to the slave owners. But the the reality is, it's restricting the slave masters, and and it it is uh, bringing up those who could very easily be disenfranchised, or you know, um, just completely. Uh, you know, just completely swept aside or ignored. I mean, mm-hmm. verse 22 of chapter 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. I mean, that passage, that's so serious. Like even with just, and society wouldn't even think about that. I think yeah, general thoughts there, law. I mean, I, you know, it, it's like, I, I mean, again, going back to man's laws here, uh, let me see if there's anything about fatherless. There's nothing about the fatherless or the widow. Okay, if a widow whose children are not grown wishes to enter another house, she's not enter it without the house of a judge. Uh, he who buys the utensils of the children of the widow shall lose them. Okay, there's nothing there about really compassion on anybody. This is just making sure a record is kept of the ways that a widow's stuff is divided up. And so, again, there's nothing there that defends the the, the outcast or the person who could be downtrodden. Well, there's no the compassion other, there. The other part is that Hammurabi cannot make the threat that God does here, which I think is right. interesting. Right, right. Because yeah. God yeah. says, I love this, and he says, and if you do, then I will make your wives widows and your children fatherless. Mm-hmm. I mean, he promises yeah, that's deep. That is deep equity. <laughs> yeah, right. equality. Yeah. I guess that is, that is deep equality. He says, if yeah. you're going to treat widows and orphans terribly, I'm just going to make more widows and orphans for somebody else. It's like, whew, that's tough yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. The second thing I think is interesting about this um, that is very modern, and I, and I don't mean this to be a, a political thing, but there are people who have, in my hearing and in some of my discussions, have said that the Bible doesn't say anything uh, whatsoever about abortion. And I just I just can't ignore in 21, uh, 22 through 25, you actually mm-hmm. do have right here this idea that an unborn child has rights. Right. Yeah, verse yeah, 23 yeah. specifically, but if any harm follows, I mean, most commentators I've read will agree basically that, that the harm following does not necessarily apply to the woman, but it's to the child that's inside her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, 
this this idea that that he never said anything about it. No, he considered that a person, and that there was equity uh, to be uh, pro- equality provided to the child as far as punishment. Now, I also understand that there is a limitation of punishment as well. Uh, you have the judges deciding what the husband may demand. Um, but you also have the idea of life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. There, you have to understand that there is consequence for this type of thing. Right. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's important to take that into consideration here is that he is still looking out for the people who are the most vulnerable. And in this case, you have someone right. who's not born yet. Yeah, you imagine if, if these laws were followed, you know, you'd get circumstances like Boaz, you know, and, and I think that would be good to talk mm-hmm. more about in the theme section. But, you know, somebody who does have a lot of property, a lot of power, you know, a lot of people under his care, a lot of servants, you know, but because he was following the law by faith and not just trying to follow rituals and commandments, you know, just reflecting on his own ability to keep them, but reflecting on God, you know, you just, you see the compassion that it cultivated in him. I talked to a fellow once that, you know, he kind of told me, and I I hadn't really thought about before this way, but he's like, you know, I wish that, uh, I wish that society was such that if I got into debt, that I would be able to be a slave to someone for six years and in the seventh go free and pay nothing. My debts will be taken care of. I have the safety net in case things go wrong. He was like, you know, it sounds great to me. You know, he's like, I don't see what the problem is. Um, Right. You know, especially with all of the the protections and regulations that were built to offer how you treat someone in that situation. Right. And and further than that, you also had the law of redemption, which means if you have someone who is a, who is a close relative, if they've got the cash to spring you, it's their responsibility to spring you. Right. That's right. Sure. And then you've got, you know, Jubilee, which is intended to give you guarantees of property. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and again, like family, like you were mentioning, you know, and then you have even in Deuteronomy where it mentions that when a slave goes free, you know, it qualifies that further by saying when the master sets them free on the seventh year, they are not to hold back. They need to make sure that they give them liberally from their possessions right. so that they're going free with as much as possible. You know, and and I think all of that is meant to give the idea that there is actually liberty in slavery in in the context of how God is defining slavery here. Um, And I think it's meant meant also to help the Israelites as they would think about these laws to also reflect on God as a master. Um, And again, I think there will be good things to talk about with with the theme section there. But I mean, I think it would make them think about how God uses his authority as a master. So like Exodus 21, 20 through 21, you know, and it says if a injured slave survives a day or two, no vengeance is going to be taken for he is his property. Again, that's, you know, if we know God, you know, obviously the intention of that law isn't to empower somebody's abusiveness, but I do think it's meant to give an understanding of authority that a master does have authority and that authority can be abused. And it's, and it's important to recognize then that when that authority is not being abused, 
there is a condition of heart that's behind the proper use of that authority, which then makes you grateful and it humbles you. The last thing in this that I think people will kind of jump to, and it's more of a modern argument about why uh, when people want to slander God as being unjust or slander his laws as being terrible, they point to one verse in Deuteronomy and they want to make it to be that a rape victim would have to marry her rapist. But in the context of that passage, it does not look like that is a rape situation, but a seduction situation. And I think that the corollary verse is right here in 22, starting in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, and again, this this, this matches up better with the Deuteronomy passage, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. Now, the difference in Deuteronomy is it says, and he cannot divorce her for the rest of his life. Uh, and then it says, but you also have the right of refusal in verse 17. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry of virgins. So this, these two verses help us to understand the later ones. And so the law is not to be read sort of uh, without the whole law being understood. And you can misuse part of it and misunderstand what's being said here. But but I think that's one of the reasons that 22, 16, and 17 are so helpful. Because we'll, we'll talk to some of our friends and neighbors and they'll say, well, you know, God's unjust. His laws are unjust. Uh, look how he would make a, um, a rape victim marry right. her husband. Uh, right, ra- right, right, right. Marry a rapist. That's not true at all. In verses 16 and 17, he says, no, that's not the case. Secondarily. You know, one of the things that I was really interested in talking about with initial observations as well as dealing with consequences when somebody doesn't know, when somebody doesn't know the Lord, they don't want the consequences for sin. They don't want consequences for their actions. They don't want to take the degree of responsibility that God is seeking to put on someone for their actions. I mean, you know, the, the whole, the whole section here in chapter 22 you know, and, and most of 21 is dealing with the fact that there are serious consequences for your actions that are meant to, I think, stop you beforehand. Like the judicial law of eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I don't think that was only meant to hurt somebody equally when they committed an offense like that. I think it was meant to stop somebody beforehand to think, okay, I'm really angry right now, but if I punch this person's eye out, I'm going to lose my eye. So it would automatically make them reflect on themselves and consider themselves as they consider hurting somebody else, which should then ideally stop them from committing the offense. I think it's easy to misunderstand and not take seriously enough God's view of sex because of immorality and because of how immorality cheapens how serious sex is. And so I think, you know, that that law is meant to protect the sanctity of the marriage bed that if, if somebody If somebody is going to have sex, that is something that is intended to be designed only for marriage. And so they need to face the consequences of that choice. And the consequences, that belongs in marriage. So, and with with the the conversation there too, I think something that's being shown here too is there can be permanent consequences for temporary actions. And it, it would encourage the nation to be very very responsible. And there's something about taking responsibility that cultivates seriousness and reverence that is also joined with an attitude of putting other people ahead of yourself. And I think it 
it would ideally, again, cultivate a certain kind of love that would have a certain kind of gravity underlying it. Well, and, and, and with that, I'm glad you brought that up because that even covers animals that you own or anything you borrow mm-hmm, or anything mm-hmm. you lend. Right. This right, idea right, right. that you're responsible for the things that are under yes. your care. Yes, that's right. Yep. I mean, yep. okay, so we borrow things, we lend things, and sometimes you know that if you borrow some, if you lend something to someone, you know certain people just, you're just not going to see it again. You write it off as like, oh, I, I lent this person. Uh, a book or a DVD and I just kind of have to, I'll probably buy another one later on. I know this person and they're probably not going to return it here. I think it's interesting how much it says, no, no. When you borrow something, you're responsible for that. Yeah, You are responsible right. for the thing that's in your care. If something happens to it. Right. Man, you're on the line for that. But what you can't do I love it. He says, if it, uh, if its owner is with it in verse uh, in chapter twenty two, verse fifteen, he shall not make restitution. He said, if the animal is standing there and the owner is standing there and the animal kills over and dies, the owner can't say, "You killed my animal." He's like, "Man, you were standing right there. I didn't. Your animal just croaked. I'm sorry, dude." <laughs> and so you you have this um, you you have this limitation of what the owner can say in here. So it would be like if 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 you lent someone your your broken uh, your broken lawnmower, and then it breaks uh, while you're kind of standing there. The guy tries to start it up, you know, and it starts smoking and falling apart right there. He can't say you broke my mower. He's like, man, you were standing right here. <laughs> I just started that thing, and so it's it's interesting. Now again, we don't you know lend our animals back and forth very often, so it's harder to make some application of this but i think there's certainly some application we can keep can, um, keep in mind yeah still on, on kind of the same subject 21 33 and 34 you know how everything you do i think you would have the ability because of god's law to reflect on god you know you're digging a pit and you're digging it. You're not going to cover it over. But as you're walking away, you remember, wait, oh, wait a minute. God said I need to cover this over because someone could fall into this and get hurt. You know, so you go back and you cover it because of God's law, you know, and just this, this little thing. And then when that conviction hits your heart, you walk away and then you think about greater things. You think about connected things. So it's almost like these laws, because of how intimate they were and because of how they, they would be connected to such ordinary things in life. It's like meditations of God would just fill your life. And, and I just think that that's so amazing how such intimate things are touched by these laws, you know, just like digging a pit and God saying, you really need to think about that. You know, if, if you're digging a pit, you know, this could potentially hurt somebody and you're going to be in trouble. So cover it over.
There's a lot of thoughtfulness that should be yes uh, encouraged by this. Yes, and uh, as as we sort of transition into the theme or the big picture aspect of this, I think it's one thing to bring up because if we look at this again, Jeremy, you made the point that one part of the law affects another part of the law in the sense of Mm -hmm. you don't get the whole picture unless you've looked at all of it. And you start to think, well, that's actually kind of how the Bible is. (laughs) And uh, the way that we look at scriptures can, you know, one can affect the other. We need to be willing to discern. Now that the thing is, and again, we'll get more into this in, in the next section, but that actually demands more focus from us as Christians today. But absolutely. you know, but but the history that we have of Israel is that they rejected this law. Right. They didn't follow right. it. They didn't do what it said. So, so all these things that we're talking about in the the good aspects of the law, they didn't see those good aspects. It seems like right. all they saw yes. was the burden of the law, the the yeah. the difficulty of all these things. And so, I mean, again, the history of Israel is the history of unfaithfulness to God. Um, more so than any other nation or people because they were given so much. Uh, So I'd like for us to kind of start there and kind of develop from that point uh, just generally in our connections. Um, Do you you guys have any reactions or thoughts to that to start with? No. I mean, I I think it's the way we have to look at this is that the last verse in our reading was twenty two thirty one. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore, yeah. you shall not eat the flesh or uh, any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. This is a theme that is developed throughout the entirety of the law. That what they yeah. ate would be a reflection of their separate quality to God Himself. They would not be like everyone else, even though God ran the entirety of the earth. They would belong to right. him and be special to him. Well, that meant that there were certain things they did and did not do. I mean, I understand that we don't eat roadkill because it's gross, but you have a, <laughs> you've got a people who are a nomadic people in the desert. They find an animal uh, that just kind of, you know, keeled over. They didn't have to kill, but there might be a temptation to say, man, that, that looks like free dinner right there. But, of course, there are a lot of other issues with eating animals that just sort of <clears throat> died on their own. And so they were going to be special to God, and it was going to be reflected in some of the decisions that they made. So I understand there's a health element to this, but the primary application of the uh, what to eat and what not to eat is not just so that they would be healthy. His primary application of that is that they would be separate to him and they would not be like right. everyone else. Right. Therefore, in yeah. the New Testament, when you have this idea of, you know, it always it always um, fascinated me when I was younger that when, when God was trying to explain to Peter that Gentiles could be allowed to be part of the covenant, that he started with food. And I, when I was younger, didn't understand the, the, the gravity of that. Mm. But Peter did. Peter makes the leap from food to people. And it's not because Peter's brilliant. He, I mean, he is. If you read First and Second Peter, the man, he's, he's really a brilliant thinker. Um, but really, the connection between the food and the people 
was a part of the law. So when God wanted to explain that all people were the same, there is a reason he chose to explain it through foods. Yeah. I think that gets to our discussion last time about even how Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 related the law about not muzzling an ox while it's treading out the grain, you know, how everything ultimately God was fully intending that everything would have a meditated application ultimately to people and the way that we see each other and treat each other. Absolutely. So also, um, with, with the idea of how Israel ultimately like failed to fulfill the positive aspects of this, I think there's an important aspect to that thematically, like in, in Amos, um, chapter two, verse seven, it mentions that the people of Israel, well, even in verse six, it says they sell the righteous for money. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth. that's on the head of the helpless. Um, a man and his father are resorting to the same woman, uh, it mentions in chapter five, verse 10, that they re- they hate the people who are reproving at the gate and p- speaking with integrity. They impose heavy rent on the poor. They, a- they exact heavy tributes, uh, they're, they're building more and more houses um, and vineyards for themselves and pushing people out of their property rights. Um, you know, so he's, he's talking about how much injustice there is. And I think there's, there's an interesting aspect of this that I think brings eternal life into view and eternal judgment for someone specifically. And that would be the oppressed and the oppressed ideally as they meditate on God, as they're robbed of the justice that the law was speaking of, it would force them to recognize that God was not failing them and that God would still keep his promise. But if his promise was not as immediate as the law was promising, then the promise must be greater than the present. And I think it's, it's, it's an amazing way for God to both demand that the powerful realize their accountability to him and his law But at the same time, when they're refusing to be accountable, it would still give them confidence that there will be justice. And that confidence would lead them to understand that God is the redeemer of their eternal life. And I think the prophets really understood that. I think you especially see Habakkuk, who is distressed about the injustice of Jerusalem. And by the end of the book, he realized that what God was replying to him about it brought eternal justice into view. And so he felt liberated. And I think it's just an amazing, flawless design to the law that both, again, it puts the powerful in a position of incredible accountability, but then the oppressed, it gives God room for patience with the powerful because the oppressed are set up to trust in God for eternal redemption. The idea of caring for the widow and the orphan continues not only throughout the law, but also into the prophets, just like you're mentioning. Yeah. And all the different places that, that, that the application is that they had not done that. So the prophets being covenant enforcers or reminding the right. people about what the law said and how to keep it or versus fail it. Uh, the widow and the orphan become sort of this, um, a reminder, sort of a, um, like a meme. I don't mean to, to, to make light of it, but it, it, it <laughs> oh, is yeah. the same concept in different applications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. It can, it continues not only throughout the entirety of the, the law, it continues on into the prophets when they're making application. And then of course it shows up in James chapter one, talking about pure and undefiled mm. religion. Uh, and yeah. so 
when James brings it up, I mean, it's not new to James. It's not, a, it's not something that he just kind of pulls out of nowhere. Uh, in the case of James, that's, he's making application of the law. In the case of James, he is still reminding people what God always wanted. And that was to take care of those people who were the most vulnerable, including the widow and the orphan. Here's the thing, though, and and maybe I'm throwing a wrench into things, but, uh, you know, we're talking here about, I mean, really what I'm getting in what, I mean, I, I agree totally with what you guys are saying, by the way, but um, the, w- one could listen to what we're saying is, okay, the law was given so that the Israelites could have the right kind of faith. You want you know, for example, I mean, a, 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 an example that would go right along this would be in Genesis with um, Hagar and Ishmael. God reminds her, shows her that he cares about her, that he's going to take care of them. Um, and But then there's also the statement that Paul makes in Galatians three nineteen, And I know that I'm getting very literal with this, but I think it's important for us to deal with this aspect of it as we get into the law and continue to look at these things. Um, Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. and was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So was the law given just to show people what sin is or was it given to encourage faith um, how do we resolve this tension? Is there any tension here? Um, well, there is, there is tension because practically it highlight failure mm-hmm. because what it did was it showed where people were wrong, but it also showed what people were supposed to be seeking after because it revealed God's character, nature, and his will for people. Uh the law did not only exist to make people failures. I think that's a misunderstanding of some of the passages. Um, and you look at some of the people who certainly understood God's character and nature from the law. If you read the Psalms, read how many times David and the other psalmists understood who God was by looking at his laws. David was not a failure because God's law David came to understand who God was because of the law. So I understand that functionally for most of Israel, by and large, it resulted in transgression because people fail it. And it showed, and if you read Romans chapter 7, trying to follow the law from only a physical standpoint is only going to show failure. But Mm -hmm. not every person only followed the law from a physical only standpoint. David being one of those people who was a great example of someone who followed the law from the heart and it changes the game. Now the, the law itself, I guess the other, the other part of that is the law itself cannot guarantee loyalty. You cannot force loyalty from the outside in. The law gave people an opportunity, an option to desire God from the inside out, but you cannot guarantee it only with laws. And that, that leads us really to another discussion too, because by the time you get to the first century, and if you look at what the Pharisees uh, were 
really holding closely to and what they said about the law. I mean, they all but basically said salvation is of the law. And we don't get that in the Gospels. You kind of have to get into their stuff to to see that. But, I mean, it's, um, I mean, it, I say you don't get that in the Gospels. You see that in their behavior and the way they deal with things. But 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 that's another aspect to think of here because, um you know, we don't want to get so enraptured in the, the, the law itself that we say, well, you know, really, we ought to be doing this, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I had a guy tell me one time, uh, years, years ago, I was ignorant at the time, but he kind of said, you know, really, we ought to be, uh, maybe we ought to just sacrifice an animal like they did in the old Testament. <laughs> just, uh, and it's just like, no. uh, no, there's a number of reasons not to there, but, um, you know, I mean, I am thinking of, you know, verse uh, 14 of chapter 21, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Very specific, weirdly specific in this passage. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw a post on the chat here out of First Kings 2, when Solomon basically right. is carrying <laughs> out the command by his father David to take out Joab. And Joab mm-hmm. was really just a a wicked man, I would say. Um, I think there were some good qualities in him, but I think his violence won out and his his temper won out. Um, you know, also and he's so, a murderer, but, but, right? Per, <laughs> yeah. Well, precisely. That's what that's what we're getting at, right? Yeah. I'm just talking about his general character, but in that passage. The problem is that he is, he's holding on, you know, once he knows they're, they're, you know, he had defected to Adonijah. Uh, he had not defected to Absalom, but he flees to the tabernacle of the Lord, takes hold of the horns of the altar, right? And so, uh, Beniah is sent to strike him down, but Beniah comes back. He says, well, he's holding on to the altar. I can't do anything. And basically Solomon, uh, says, uh, do do as he has said and strike him down and bury him that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab sh- shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. Though my father David did not know it, their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab, upon the head of his descendants forever, but upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. And so Benaiah goes and he strikes him, strikes him down. But I, I, maybe that's too extreme of a connection to make there. But I mean, that's the kind of person that I feel like, I feel like, you know, there's a connection here somewhere. Why, why would he specify you shall take him from my altar that he may die? I know yeah, there's I think, a context here, but I think, you know, with, Joab and others is a false presumption of repentance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, David, David understood repentance, you know, he probably understood repentance and, and, and humbling oneself better than anybody else in the nature in, in, in the nation, you know, in his day, you know, and Joab and in the context of that time, Joab, Joab had allied with one of David's sons who was clearly not the one to be appointed as King. And all of those, all of those events really heightened the fact that it was clear that Joab had maintained the heart that led him 
to reject David's judgments of mercy that he had made earlier, where Joab had violated those judgments and murdered men that David was trying to extend mercy to. You know, so I think in, in verse 14 of Exodus 21, it's the idea of if, if somebody's grabbing onto the altar, that doesn't all of a sudden vindicate them from wrong. Um, you know, kind of like if, if somebody in the context of our day commits a sin and then they just start attending worship assemblies, you know, and they're trying to be very passionate about worship, but they are not taking responsibility for their sin. There's, there's no sense of repentance. There's no broken or contrite heart. They don't want to talk about their sin. They, they reject the notion that anything should be done. You know, it's like, well, attending at an assembly, partaking of the Lord's Supper, singing songs and listening to a sermon is not the same thing as repentance, right? Right. You can't just sort of assume that everything's okay. Yeah. So, so in the context locally here, I mean, we could, we could kind of determine that really it's just, you can't ignore this. You can't act like everything's okay and allow right. him to just yeah. take part with the worship, take him away from that so that he may die. But, yeah. and, and, and of course that's distinguished and, and contrasted between someone who does not lie in wait, but God delivers him into his hand, which again, mm-hmm. if you connect that with David, it kind of makes it that much more amazing that by the law, here's the thing, by the law right here, David could point to a verse here and say, yeah, I can kill Saul because the law says this. Mm. But the reality is he still restrained himself and stayed his hand because he's the Lord's mm. anointed. Right. And it's right, like, right, right. so, so it's like, that's, that's so amazing because we, we, tend to want to take any advantage that we can to do what we can. So if right, someone, right, right. if someone thinks, well, you know, I know that the situation with my husband was not, you know, that didn't really work out well. Uh, let's say you've got a situation where maybe, maybe even both parties are at fault. I don't know. But then you, you want to look at a verse to say, okay, well, I can, I can remarry. Well, there are verses you can pluck out and say, okay, yeah, no, um, you know, God, God says that, uh, you know, if, if I, if he leaves, then I, you know, I'm under no duty to him. And so I can go get remarried. Well, that's, that's the problem. We're not looking for the restraint. We're not looking to model our character after this. At that point, at that point, we're just looking for an out. We're just looking for Mm -hmm. an excuse. Right. Um, and so that's not proper, well, that's not proper Bible study, but that's not proper, that's not actual faith. That's not, yeah. that's not following God's commands. Yeah, and I think that, you know, thematically, you know, gets to things like Zacchaeus um, in Luke 19. Um, you know, there, there's a, a heaviness. Um, the idea of the restitution thing on Zacchaeus, I'm glad you brought that up. That is an amazing thing because if they, if they, if they took anything through grift, they were to pay back to add one fifth. And he says, I'm going to pay back four times. I mean, that's just, that's huge. Yes. Um, It's amazing. So here he says uh, that if it's found to be stolen, he shall pay double. So Zacchaeus is even paying more than what the double is. It's yeah. just, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. And I think like the law, there was, if, if judicially, if there was a judicial command that you needed to do that, 
you imagine you would feel the heaviness, you know, cause like the heart, you know, I, I, I'm sure we've all experienced the convictions where, you know, you have to do something that your impulse does not want to allow you to do, but because of your conviction, you work through that heaviness to still act, you know? And, and I think the law would teach you to deal with convictions in a godly way that, be, that I'm willing to accept conviction. I'm willing to listen to my convictions. And in the new Testament, it's not so much that we need the judicial force to act on conviction, but we just need Jesus. And ultimately in the law, it's Christ who is meant to be the force of those judicial uh, commands. And so Zacchaeus, I think he demonstrates that it's not that the the heaviness of conviction disappears under the new covenant and the grace of the new covenant. It's actually that the grace and the mercy of the new covenant cultivate deeper convictions to act without the force of judicial enforcement and command, just but knowing Jesus. Voluntarily. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and that's the maturity of the new covenant. So this this idea that we are going to be trying to find ways to keep the law, the spirit of the law, without being under just the physical regulations. Uh, I understand we're not under the law, but we are trying to accomplish the righteousness of the law in Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one right. of the things yeah. we read about yeah. in Romans yeah. chapter 8. In Christ, Absolutely. we accomplish yeah. the righteousness of the law. Right. We yep. are yep. free now without the force of the law to do the things that are right. People think that, well, the old law was so uh, harsh and so terrible, and now with the new covenant, you know, those who understand the Bible has two covenants at least, uh, um, uh, you you move, you know, the thought is, well, now we've moved past that, that's been nailed to the cross, and now now we're free. Now we're free of the law. We're free of, the, of, of any law is what a lot of people will say, mm-hmm. even though Paul... Yeah, well, Paul himself is saying, you know, not without law to Christ. And so there is a law right, of right, Christ right. being talked about. So we want to appreciate that. But then the, the also the reality is, just as we just touched on, that, that that brings it to a whole other level. You think about yourself as a Jew. Think about yourself as a Jew living under this system. And let's just say this is in David's day or in Solomon's day, where it is being held to strictly and enforced and put into practice extremely well, right? Um, there's not a whole lot that you have to do to really figure out 
you know, what your part in all this is. There's not a whole lot of like working out or discerning, right? However, in the New Testament, there's a lot about discerning things, reasoning through things, working through things. And again, I think it goes back to the thought that this is, just as you mentioned, Brian, a maturity to this. Uh, God's people, the remnant of God's people has grown up. They're no longer the babies coming out of Egypt having to be told exactly, this is what you do with this, and this is what you do with this, and this is what you do with this. There is so much about the experience of being a Christian that is, it's not that it's left up to us to figure out what's right and wrong. It's left up to us to discern from God's word and judge not necessarily judge as far as determine what's right and wrong, but assemble, make conclusions from the truth that's been revealed about what we ought to do. Are you saying that we should be mature, having been trained to discern what is right and wrong? You could put it that way <laughs> so if good. you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, I think somebody did one time. <laughs> yeah, having our senses trained. Time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, precisely. That's really, really good. I I think that's a great application. Yeah. And and we're talking generally about the law here, right? So hopefully in times ahead when we continue to look at these ordinances, um, we don't necessarily have to hammer this too much. But, I mean, the reality is this does create a problem for those who choose not to be mature. Whether Mm, it's someone who says oh, that's a law, so I don't have to follow that because I'm free in Christ. No, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Grow up. Understand, yeah. God still has a law. The and second he was way, using, and he was using the law to help them understand what right and wrong meant. Right, right, right. That yeah. means that I am looking to the law to try to figure out what God's ideas about right and wrong are. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, generally pattern myself after that, and right. so and then and then the second way I think that we are immature about these things is when we say, okay, I see all these things. I'm reading my Bible all the time, and I'm 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 recognizing not about reading the Bible all the time. We should be reading our Bibles every day, but uh, I'm looking at things. I'm saying, you know what? I, I really think that uh, if I make this modification to my life, I think I can serve God more properly. You know, let's say someone says, you know what, I have a problem with watching too much TV or playing video games. I'm going to get rid of that out of my life. But, and that's, you know, that's wonderful, right? I mean, if you find a way to get closer to God, but then let's say you take that next step and you say, you know what, no Christian should have a TV in their home and no Christian should ever play a video game. Then you're taking that law in your immaturity. You are pushing that on someone else. And, and again, that gets into a Romans 14 situation where you're going to, you're going to say, okay, here's a good idea, right? Here's a good idea, not eating meat. Okay. But I'm going to, I'm going to push that on somebody and say, no, you cannot eat meat either. But the reality of that is that's not recorded. That's not something that has been, you know, shown to them in the text. Right. And so I think that's just a, that's another way. That's maybe another side of these things where we can be immature as well. Yes. And, you know, the idea of maturely accomplishing righteousness that we can see reflected in the law, that does require some work, but it also requires a a level of honesty. Um, So, right. Let uh, just for a moment on the application section, 
Uh, so you mentioned earlier about people looking to places in the New Testament even to try to find a way to get out of their marriage situations. They're going to try to find a loophole and they're going to, in an immature manner, try to find a way to justify themselves using the verses. But I think it's interesting that at the same time, we come up with some other problems. I have seen situations where you had such a focus on the, uh, the, the sanctity of the marriage covenant. And I don't disagree whatsoever, but it ended up functionally making a whole bunch of young people who were very sexually active, but they were not ever getting married because once you got married, that's forever. And so you had a, uh, the, the focus had been so heavy on, well, once you get married, you can't get divorced. And if you, and if any divorce happens, you're single the rest of your life. And so these people would, uh, we had ways of talking about it. They weren't very honest. They would sow their wild oats or maybe sometimes boys will be boys kind of thing. And so they I would hate that. I hate it I, so I'm, much. I'm with you. I'm with you hundred <laughs> percent. I a hundred percent agree with you. And if I look at the law and I understand the value of the law and I'm trying to be a mature reader of the law, then I understand that God said, look, if you seduce a girl who's nobody's girl, she's not married, but she's not sexually active and you make her that way, then it is your responsibility to take her on. Or if her father refuses you, you make then you, monet- you pay you make you monetary pay restitution you pay yeah. up son and i'm amazed at how supposedly mature disciples will, will look at a situation and encourage a young man not to marry the girl that he's gotten in trouble i mean she's not only she's not, they're not only been active now she's pregnant but he doesn't we don't know if it's going to work out. So let's not force him into a loveless marriage. Mm. Oh, mm. oh, really? Mm. The wake up call that so many people need, and I would include previous generations with this is that marriage takes work. Amen. And I, I, I believe that Amen. a couple that feels like they have nothing in common, they can get together and they can be married and they, you know, and, and, and work those things out. It's not always going to be easy. No. But, I mean, no, I think not. about when, when, when I was thinking about uh, marrying my wife, um, my grandpa told me, like, listen, if, if you work on it, it'll work out, you know. <laughs> and, and I think that's just so wise because it's just like, you know, uh, and, and, and I, I recognize, right, if, if, if this happens and you, you get someone pregnant, I mean, there's no requirement there to marry them, right? You, I, I couldn't set, tell someone under no. the new law you have to marry. No, them. no. But what I what I am saying, and I think what you're saying is that that uh, you know take responsibility for your own actions. Somehow you can't Absolutely. just do things like this and just. I mean, at the very least, be a father to that child. Um, you or, know. but I, I, I it, and I agree with you. But in this case, I think that he's not. He never gives an out for someone to say, you know, right. well, you can just sure. write a check. You can just write a check every month, and you're good. No, the idea is to take care of her, because right. the mom. I mean, he doesn't even say that she gets pregnant. He's just saying if you have taken her off the market, if you want to say it like that. Mm-hmm. Well, she's yours now, man. 
Yeah. Now, if we talked about this stuff with our young men and women as preachers, if we talked about these things and, and, and explained to them the seriousness that God placed on engaging these actions that are reserved for marriage so that if you engage in the action, well, guess what? Then you need to sign on the line, son. Well, we and, might and, have a different culture in our churches. Well, and discuss yeah, the so. permanence of marriage. Like you said, I don't think that's a bad point, again, to say, no, like, no. You know, know what you're getting into. But at the same time, know that fornication is defilement. That's right. And that will that will mark you. That will stain you. And and he said the solution for that was get married and stay together and you can't get divorced. Right. Again. Period, guys. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I think, you know, you, you remember that God is the examiner of the heart, you know, and so God understands how sex impacts the heart better than we do, you know, and, and, and I think, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's easy with an over-sexualized culture, it's easy to underestimate how sex, God designed sex to touch and impact our hearts permanently, you know, and, and, and I think based on that law and, and just threaded through all of scripture, when God is talking about sex and marriage, I mean, there's something that happens to the heart when somebody engages in sex with another person. And what happens to the heart is meant to connect somebody permanently to that other person. And when that doesn't Amen. happen, there is there is yeah. a, a betrayal and a disappointment and a loss of hope yes. that is so damaging. And it's again, God examining the heart, there is a depth of damage that we yes. may not understand clearly ourselves, but God sees it and God hates it. Amen. Amen. And, and yet we want to harden our hearts. We want to become right. more disconnected yes. from one another. We want to tear, we want to, we want to engage in this more often. And we want to talk about, you know, accidentally catching feelings for someone who's, who's been your, your uh, friend with benefits. And it's just, it's, it's a terrible, terrible situation. And right now as a society, we are, certainly reaping the whirlwind on this one in first Corinthians six. I think you see these things again in their maturity in Christ really emphasized, you know, in first Corinthians six verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her for he says the two shall become one flesh. And he relates it to our being joined to the Lord, you know? And so there's Amen. a maturity, of, you know, if, if, if you understand that God has joined you to himself permanently through the simplicity of our being baptized into Christ, then we should understand the concept that sex, as God has designed it, is meant to have a, a permanence in being joined. A unifying, yeah. A unifying aspect to it. And again, like just like the law is meant to cause you to reflect on what God has done as the basis of your understanding of application, what Paul is trying to do with the Corinthians is you're not thinking, he's telling them you're not thinking enough about what God has done. You're not, you're not reflecting on God's work as the basis of what you're doing. Well, and I think we should make it clear for our audience and, and, you know, just for the sake of anyone who's out there listening or might listen, um, I don't think that we're saying also in First Corinthians 6 that, that uh, you know, sex with someone who is not, you know, bound to you through marriage constitutes marriage itself. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that's another conversation, but I just wanted to make that clear to everyone listening. That mm -hmm. We're not mm -hmm. saying that, but Paul is using that example to say that there's more going on with that act than what we often think is happening. Yeah. And of course, you know, in the first century, you would have places where women would offer themselves 
in idol temples. Yeah. Uh, for ritual you know, cult prostitution. For, yeah. Yeah. Precisely. So, so that was a reality of their day. And that's why he's saying, you know, if you, if I'm, if I'm going to join with a harlot, there's an aspect where I'm giving something of myself over to her and, you know, she's giving something of herself over to me and there's a sharing there. Um, but I don't, you know, just for the sake, again, just for the sake of our audience, I know that's not what we're talking about, but I don't think, I don't believe that constitutes marriage. Yeah. And I think so to stay in that same chapter with another application, you know, the law, the ideas that are within dealing with taking responsibility, making restitution, um, thinking about the victim as the one who's maybe victimizing somebody. Um, earlier in First Corinthians 6, when the Corinthians were suing each other and taking each other to court, um, right. I think Paul deals with the maturity of all of this as well in verse 7 and 8 when he says, the fact that they're suing each other and taking each other to court is actually already a loss and a defeat. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather yeah. be defrauded? He says, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. You know, and, and again, he gets into, you've been, you've been saved by the grace of God. So your salvation should teach you inherently to just accept being wronged by your brethren and not to pursue, you know, justice in a way where you're, you're defrauding others or trying to defend your own rights. Just let it go. And I think that that's one of the ultimate mature applications of the things in Exodus is I don't want to do anything to incur losses in others. I don't, I'll take responsibility, you know, like you see in Abigail in first Samuel 25, when Nabal incurs David's wrath and Abigail says, put the blame on me and we'll just accept the loss. I think it's interesting that he talks about this kind of keeping the coat and pledge, this idea of holding on to something to make sure that you got what you were owed, the demanding your rights. I thought that was an interesting one. And the other, the only last one I thought that I, I just can't ignore as far as a modern application, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. Mm, We're about to come into election yes. season. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The way that people are going to talk about the rulers of the people is yeah. about to get disgusting. Yeah. Uh, the idea that he says the same kind of reverence that you're supposed to pay toward making sure you were careful about the way you talk about God. He says, apply a portion of that at least, or, or see the connection to the rulers of the people. We think somehow that we are perfectly free to talk about the rulers of our people in the old way. When you have so many places, even in the new Testament, talk about reviling majesties or bringing a curse or speaking ill of rulers. Yeah. God put them there for a reason. I don't yeah. care if we like them. I don't care if we agree with them politically. We, and, and this is coming from somebody who is, um, somebody who comes from Texas, a a place that thinks it's his own country and (laughs) someone who grew up with a fairly libertarian culture to where all politicians were automatically bad. And so it has long been my struggle to be careful how I talk about people in power. Mm, Right. But here, the mature application of these things is to be careful how we talk about these people who are in power. Yeah. Yep. I mean, what would you, what would you say to them if they were in the same room with you? I mean, would you say that these same things that you're typing out 
on Facebook or Twitter or whatever you're using. Um, again, I mean, you could, you could use that rule for pretty much any kind of interaction that we have and recognize that so often the things that we say uh, are not going to be, you know, they're not going to stand up to God in the day of judgment. And so uh, we, we, we need to recognize that God is not one to be reviled and the rulers uh, or the leaders, the controllers, whatever you want to call them. Um, we may have our opinions. We may have things that we think or see or observe, and it's not always wrong for us to observe those things, but I just think we need to be careful. So I, I appreciate you saying that Jeremy, because I, I, I think that's something that, that needs to be shared more often than not. Well, think about when Jesus was before Pilate, right? You know, I mean, Pilate yeah, right. was, yeah. Pilate was historically a, a scumbag, you know, and, and when you look at, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and you look at Luke um, 13, where Pilate had mingled blood of people with sacrifices. I mean, just atrocious things that he was doing when Jesus is face to face with Pilate, he doesn't say like, he doesn't just unleash on Pilate. He respects where he is. He respects the authority Pilate has been given, you know, and, and, when you, and, brought you, up in, you brought up in Luke. I mean, when he says, when they, they're talking about the blood that was mingled uh, with the foundations, is that what he's talking about? No, with, with the, the sacrifice. The, the blood I'm sorry. With the sacrifices. What he was saying. Yes, yeah. that's right. right, there, right. There, was a, there was a group that had been at the sacrifice who tried to uh, storm a revolt at the time. And Pilate ordered, like, this is during, like, sacrifice time. Pilate ordered right. that they be killed on the spot. And so the yeah. blood being mingled with the sacrifices was sort of a poetic way of saying, well, those rebels got killed right there, like, at the temple. Yeah, right. And he says, well, but, 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 of course, the, the application Jesus makes is, okay, but don't think that they're the worst people in the world. Yes. Right. Yeah, he's like, and think see, about that's, yourself. That's what I was going to say yeah. is, like, even to others, Jesus wasn't, like – talking down about Pilate, he was right. using that yes. moment as a teachable moment to say, Hey, look at yourself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that, and that's the thing. If, if Jesus could be silent when there was a push to speak about someone like Pilate, because you imagine how much people in that moment were actually looking for that. Like, Oh, Jesus, did you hear about this thing Pilate did? And he says, what about you? You know what you, yeah. you think you <laughs> right. are better. That's right. You know? And, and, and so I think, I think it's important to, look at the emphasis that scripture puts on focusing on where, where am I and recognizing that anything I say about a political leader, you know, if, if God were to put me on the spot, man, you think about the rich young ruler, you know, if God wants to be Sorry. my accuser, he could annihilate me. He could make me feel so humiliated so fast, you know? And so there just needs to be such a caution in, in being so quick to annihilate others when it's, when it's seemingly easy to do it, especially when political people, their faults can seem so apparent, you know, and, and God, but, God sees our faults even more clearly. But Brian, we have to, we have to destroy the other side. We have to absolutely beat up the other people. Well, and, and what I've, what I've heard though is, you know, evil thrives when good people stand and say nothing, you know, and it's like, yeah. I, I hear you, but I just don't, I don't see that annihilating well, and speaking against political leaders Right. You know, it's like, what's, what's the context God gives for following that principle? Right. So sure. it's, it's Jude, easy to justify Jude says, things. 
Jude 9, Michael the archangel in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, if there's any kind of situation where one person can rebuke another, I would think an angel who's faithfully (laughs) serving God would be able to say to one who had rebelled against God, hey, you're wrong. I'm rebuking you. No, he leaves that up to God. The battle is the Lord's. And so, I mean... 100% 100% well, agreed with you guys. And, and, and uh, just in that same in that same section, so Second Peter 2 and Jude are so similar. I think it's funny when he talks about the attitude of those people who talk that way, he calls them unreasoning animals. Mm. And every time I hear or see someone completely like go off the deep end and decide that they're going to get into this abusive political speech, all I can all I can think about is that you're not even thinking anymore you're not even thinking like a rational human being you're just like an unreasoning animal yeah and i have to watch myself so carefully because i can get wrapped up in that i can get i can see bad things happen in the media i can see bad things happen on tv i can watch the stupid political commercials and i can you know get wrapped up in that but i have become an unreasoning animal at that point right yeah feeding off of impulse and emotion so, so I think for like the last 10 minutes have just been from one verse. <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating. That you, when we get into these things, like there's probably a whole other podcast you could have about like connections of the ordinances of God and talking about, you know, the ins and outs of all of this. Uh, so but time, I don't think allows for us to really get into the details of everything, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, not that, what we've said has been useless. I think what, what we've said and talked about has been very, very useful. Um, at least to me, but, um, yeah, you guys have anything else before we wrap it up there? There is one more thing that I think is extremely important and it's, it's been heavy on my, my heart lately with some conversations I've been having, um, recently for second Corinthians seven verse 11. Um, he mentions that the way that the Corinthians with the circumstance being discussed the way that they handled it repentantly he says the godly sorrow had produced he says well i'll just read the verse for behold what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you what vindication of yourselves what indignation what fear what longing what zeal what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter i think there's there's a principle in the new testament of maturity and repentance that a truly repentant heart will vindicate oneself of sin certain sins, there are broken relationships and there are wrongs that are left open to be willfully pursued to right those wrongs and to humble oneself openly. And it can be easy. I think we're, we've talked about justifying oneself. There are, there are, do you think about adultery, you know, a sin where, where you're, you're hurting people, you are damaging relationships and there can, I think easily in an unrepentant heart be the thought, well, well, I told God I'm sorry, and I did that privately, and that's all it takes, and I'm done, you know? And I, it's concerning when you go to someone and you try to encourage them to, to consider that their, their way of handling their repentance stopped way short of vindicating those wrongs, and they don't want to do it, and they refuse to accept that there's more responsibility that needs to be taken that, that to me, that that's it's such a violation of fundamental principles that God displays very clearly and consistently through Scripture. You know, so I think one of the most important principles in all of this is when there's been sin, there 
needs to be a taking on of full responsibility for the wrongs that have been committed and doing the best that one can do to repair those broken things. And there may not be the ability to obviously go back to every single person or whatever, but I think there's an attitude that's willing to go the distance. And that's the attitude of true repentance. All right. Uh, Lord willing, next time we'll be going into Exodus 23 and uh, grateful for you guys being here. Jeremy, thank you so much. I've, I've enjoyed this so much. This has been such a great yeah. uh, opportunity and I'm glad to be able to talk about this, uh, this stuff with you guys. Um, it feels interesting to kind of come into this work after so much culture has come before us and be able to kind of look at these things fresh and encourage one yeah. another. It's, it's really useful for, for me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Bryant as well. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto the sentiments Jeremy stated just deeply, encouraging and, and the amount of things that are put into the mind from this are, are very valuable. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, uh, Lord willing, we hope that you uh, study well and that we study well and let's all be lights to God's glory. Oh,
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.